Hello everyone, welcome to SNAP, a podcast of uh, political history and curiosity. I'm Joe Boone. This is episode one of season two, since uh, we are in a different year now. Uh, and after a long break over Christmas, New Year's and all of January for some reason, Parliament came back. The first big event on the political calendar was, of course, Waitangi Day on February 6th, the day commemorating the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi, or Te Tariti o Waitangi, which established the right of the British Crown to govern Aotearoa, now named the realm of New Zealand. I say govern, the more alert of you will have noticed, and that is what the Māori Rangatira agreed to. The Crown right to govern and its obligation to protect the rights of Māori. Māori, according to the Māori version of the treaty, would retain their sovereignty, tino rangatiratanga, and this, this, however, was uh, rapidly rubbished and was eventually trashed altogether. Today, we are living in a sort of Māori renaissance, and respect for the treaty has become a political touchstone for New Zealand governments. Usually, a large contingent of MPs, including the Prime Minister, attend the cultural events on the Lower Marae at Waitangi. There was often a controversy and you know, divisive things that happened, protests and that sort of thing happened at Waitangi. They may well happen again, probably will happen again. Uh, but since the days of John Key as Prime Minister, um, that really hasn't been the case. But also, last month, uh, Joe Biden was inaugurated as the 46th US President. In New Zealand, we are a democracy like the United States, but that's where the similarities end. Now, I'd like to contrast us with the US to try and um, to try and make our system a little more clear, in the United States, the president is the head of the executive and head of state. He is separated from the legislature, the houses of Congress. The prime minister of New Zealand is also head of the executive government, but not head of state. The Queen of New Zealand is Head of State, and she's also the uh, Queen of, of the Commonwealth and of Britain. Since she is usually in Wisconsin Buckingham Palace, the Governor-General, uh, who Dame Patsy Reddy, uh, is the Queen's representative and fulfills her functions in Wellington, conferring honours, signing bills into, into law as acts of parliament, and opening major building projects. The Governor-General uses the Queen's powers uh, to dismiss and dissolve parliament and call an election. 
and also to pardon people convicted of crimes. None of these powers can be used by the Governor-General except on the advice of the Prime Minister or other responsible ministers. The US President, as you may know, has no such restraint. He can pardon anyone from federal crimes. He can veto laws, something that only exists in very limited circumstances in New Zealand. The government can employ a financial veto on private members' bills, um, that which, which is a non-government bill, if it will significantly affect the country's finances. But otherwise, New Zealand's parliament is supreme. Like the UK Parliament and the Australian Parliament and the Canadian Parliament, the US Congress is not supreme and it has steadily been losing power for 240 years. As I have explained in previous episodes, in New Zealand the executive and legislature are fused together. The Prime Minister and every other minister is an MP, and Parliament starts every sitting day with question time, when the opposition puts the government through the ringer, or they try to. Um, ministers have to front up. Now. The US Congress does something similar uh, by conducting hearings whereby they question members of the President's Cabinet, but it's not really the same. It's not the full Congress, it's a committee like the Judiciary Committee, and no authority can dispute the non-answers that are given. To be in the cabinet and wield extraordinary power over social housing or education means you had to get elected uh, to parliament first in New Zealand. Um, that doesn't mean it's impossible for someone like Betsy DeVos to become education minister, uh, but she would have to get elected to parliament then her party has to win enough seats to form a government and the Prime Minister would have to choose her to be Minister of Education. Not impossible, not impossible, but much more difficult than in the United States when all she has to do uh, was be rich and awful and have Donald Trump's phone number. What I want to talk about today is how Prime Minister's fall from power. There's a few ways and we can analyse them through the downfall of three modern Prime Ministers, Jim Bolger, Helen Clark and Sir John Key. Jim Bolger, the stab in the back. Bolger led the National Party to victory in 1990 when the fourth Labour government tore itself apart over the neoliberal policies it was implementing despite their clear unpopularity 
Bolger promised something different. He won. And his new government doubled down on those neoliberal policies. This pissed people off. And in a couple of binding referendums, they approved a new proportional electoral system, which the government campaigned against. Then the National Party nearly lost the 1993 election, but last under the old system, and Bolger, as a response, removed Finance Minister Ruth Richardson, thus bringing an end to the neoliberal reforms that the public hated. Then came the dog's breakfast of the 1996 election. So it was the first ever um, election with proportional representation. Parliament was hung, as no party had a clear majority. Winston Peters, leader of the Nationalist Populist New Zealand First Party, after having split from uh, the National Party a few years earlier, uh, had the power to make a deal with either National or Labour. He went with National, but not before dragging out the negotiations for nine weeks and extracting considerable concessions from Bolger. Under their coalition agreement, Peters would be Deputy Prime Minister and take the newly created position of Treasurer, which gave him seniority over the Minister of Finance. He originally wanted to be the Minister of Finance, Bolger said no, Sid said okay I'll be Treasurer and that makes me more powerful. Um, Bolger continued as Prime Minister, but there was dissent festering in the ranks of his caucus, and it was coalescing around the ambition, big pardon, coalescing around his ambitious Minister of Transport, Jenny Shipley, an ally of neoliberal Minister of Finance Ruth Richardson, who, as Minister for Welfare, that is uh, Shibley's Minister of Welfare, cut all benefits by a large proportion, believing that benefits should be low enough to drive the undeserving poor off them and give them motivation to get out and work. Uh, this did not actually work and ended up creating uh, massive inequality and uh, poverty. However, in 1997, Shipley was on the rise and Bolger was running out of political capital. Frustrations grew. Shipley thought Bolger was too cautious and that New Zealand First had too much influence. The latter was a miscalculation on her part and would risk her government the following year. Bolger was an old-fashioned bloke. He 
uh, treated mistakes by his ministers with a stiff drink to slap on the back. He knew how to strike the ego of Winston Peters and keep the coalition together. By the latter half of 1997, uh, Bul while Bulger was out of the country at the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting, or else known as Chogham, while he was gone, Shipley moved against him. She whipped sufficient support among colleagues to be able to inform Bulger on his return that she had the numbers. So if, uh, if he pushed her to, um, to schedule a meeting, um, she would be elected leader and he would be dumped. Um, Jim Bolger, known as the Great Helmsman, who not too long before that had forced his cabinet, who was hostile to the idea, to approve of the building of a national museum in Wellington known as Papa. Um, he resigned rather than face the indignity of the caucus vote. So Jenny Shipley became the first female Prime Minister on August 8th, 1997. But she had reckoned without the approval of the Deputy Prime Minister Winston Peters. Relations between them deteriorated quickly and on August 14th, in 1998, she sacked him from the cabinet. This effectively terminated the coalition, but the clever Prime Minister kept the support of enough New Zealand First MPs who split with their party to form a new ragtag coalition with National. Shibley kept the government going until she was finally defeated by Helen Clark the following year. So there we have the efficient coup that toppled Bolger. He wasn't stabbed in the back so much as Shipley drew her sword and upon seeing that, Bolger promptly fell on his own. Our next example is Helen, Helen Clark. Bad polling in 1996, when she was leader of the opposition and leader of the Labour Party, made a group of her MPs approach her and ask her to step down. But unlike Shipley, they hadn't secured the numbers. They hadn't coalesced around a single candidate who was willing to challenge. Um, and Helen Clark sensed their weakness. She refused, and it's often described in books, uh, that she stared them down. Um, and the, the coup came to nothing, it just fizzled and dissolved. She was never challenged again by the party. Uh, after becoming Prime Minister in 99, she remained in office for three terms. She was defeated by, by the voters on the night of November 8th, 2008. 
and stunned the Labour Party by resigning as leader in her concession speech. That really was rare, if not unheard of, at the time. She was anxious to move on and resigned from Parliament the following year to become the head of the United Nations Development Programme, which uh, new Prime Minister John Key lobbied hard for on her behalf. There is quite a bit of bipartisan respect at the top of New Zealand politics. Um, so you have been dubbed as Prime Minister by your colleagues or shown the door by the voters. That's those uh, two ways that um, Prime Ministers can fall. But is there another option? Why? Yes, of course there is. Enter John Key. Uh, John Key became Prime Minister in the waning weeks of 2008 and enjoyed a honeymoon of high popularity for seven years. Seriously, the man could not stop being popular. He won the 2011 and 2014 elections with the larger share of the vote both times. The, he looked like he would be the first Prime Minister since the 1960s to win a fourth term and serve in office for more than a decade. But the job is really hard and the stress is high, the hours are long. No one was clamouring to unseat key, no one had uh, was wielding the knife. But after seven years in the job, John Key was worn out, and he looked at the hair. He carefully dyed to give him permanently grey temples, but a brown thatch uh, had become much thinner. The territory from his eyes to his chin was a network of deepening lines, and the youthful aspect he had so winningly used against Helen Clark in 2008 was gone. He was no longer boyish. But Smarty Pants John Key always knows when to jump. He left investment banking with tens of millions of dollars in stock options long before the global financial crisis and had the perfect time to start a political career with enough time to learn the ropes build up his profile and take the leadership of the National Party right when Helen, the Helen Clark government was starting to look vulnerable and people were getting tired of it. So he knew when to quit. He also thought that if he were to win in 2017 and resign after his 10 year anniversary he would have been disingenuous with the public by asking them to back him for another term, only for him to walk away partway through. Therefore, he wanted to leave before the 2017 election. But he wanted to give his successor enough time to have the best possible shot at the 2017 election. So on December 5th, 2016, he announced his resignation, and 
therefore giving his successor, who turned out to be Bill English, um, almost a year to run up to the next election. And Bill English very nearly won that election. Uh, they they were they received forty three or forty four uh, percent of the party vote, um, but because they didn't have any support party backing, they couldn't form a coalition or minority government, and therefore Labour did with a much smaller proportion of the vote uh, by forming government with. Winston Peters, yes, he returned. <sighs> so, yes, so thus John Key goes down in history as one of the most popular Prime Ministers, uh, but also undefeated, never lost an election. So that is three ways a Prime Minister can leave office, but there is a fourth, can you guess it? Death. Ah, uh, it comes to us all. It is the certain end of a political career. Except in North Korea, where the preserved corpse of Kim Il-sung remains the country's eternal president. Seriously, the official eternal president. Alas, no salary. Unless you count the morticians who wet the mould from his frosty toes. Well, that's it from me this episode. Please consider rating and reviewing the podcast uh, wherever you are listening from. It helps others find the show and makes me happy and contented. And uh, in special thanks to... Um, to to Manawatu People's Radio for broadcasting me. Anyway, viva Biden and thanks for listening to Snap Talking.